0: Well, good morning, Wake family. Uh, it is such a joy uh, to be back here. Uh, my wife and I were trying to remember on the way down how long it's been. We've actually, since we s- stepped foot in the sanctuary, and I think we've realized it's been five years since we've been back. Uh, we were sent out by you all, commissioned by you, uh, almost right at eight years ago, uh, my family, my wife, uh, Paige, is over here, and my, my daughters and, and Nathan and Andy Knight were commissioned to go to plant Was- uh, Restoration Church in Washington, D.C., and uh, God has been so faithful. There are so many stories that I could tell about his faithfulness and kindness. Uh, God has answered your prayers, North Wake. He keeps answering them. He's, he's using your financial generosity uh, to help us reach the loss and equip them in the process uh, becoming mature and ministering worshipers of God. Uh, as Larry said last week, M&M worshipers. Uh, and so we're so thankful for you. And I, uh, you'll, you'll never know this side of heaven how much of a kingdom impact you're having. Uh, but on behalf of the saints at Restoration Church, thank you. Thank you for your prayers. Prayers in the early days and prayers that continue. Uh, thank you for your gospel partnership. And I hope you look forward to heaven. Uh, there will be brothers and sisters there that you've never met yet you share so much in common with, and you'll get to celebrate God's grace uh, together for eternity. And so as we turn our minds toward God's word, let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would satisfy us with your steadfast love this morning. Take your word and use it, Holy Spirit, to exalt Jesus Christ. It's in his name, the holy name of Christ, that I pray. Amen. Uh, Well, as George mentioned, we are going to continue through your your study of Hebrews. And if you've seen anything so far, it's, it's what's on the screen. Jesus is greater. So you've seen so far Jesus is greater than the prophets and he's greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the devil and he's greater than death. Jesus is greater than Moses and Joshua. Jesus is our great Sabbath rest. Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Christ. And the the author wants us to know the, the supremacy of Christ like we know the deliciousness of cinnamon and sugar. Not as looking at a jar but as it dissolves upon your tongue. And so chapter after chapter, the author of Hebrews puts another delicious drop of the sweetness of Christ upon the taste buds of our souls that we might savor Jesus. And if you remember, the original recipients were facing persecution. And so they were being tempted to go back to empty religion and worldly comforts. And so interwoven with these pictures of Christ's supremacy are also these warning passages to hold fast to Christ. The author reminds them of the the dangers of looking elsewhere for salvation and satisfaction. And so over and over again Hebrews is saying Jesus is greater. Trust him and treasure him above all things. And that very theme continues with our text This morning, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 14 through 16 for us. Hear the word of the Lord. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here in this passage, we find hope for tempted and tired believers. For the weak and needy, this passage is like balm for the soul, and if that's where you are this morning, God has a word for you. For my non-Christian friends here among us, I'm thankful that you're here. And I'm guessing you probably came to church because there's something inside of you, there's a yearning, there's a longing inside your soul that you've tried the things of the world and it just doesn't satisfy. And I know why that is. It's because you were made for something, or should we say someone, greater. And so it's my prayer this morning that you see Jesus satisfies every need and want of yours. The longings of your heart will only be fulfilled by the sweet supremacy of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this text, I see two exhortations, or I'd like to say two invitations for us. Verse 14, hold fast. Verse 16, Draw near. So, for all you copious note takers, there's your outline. Invitation number one, hold fast to Jesus. Invitation number two, draw near to God through Jesus. Let's look at each of those, and just to set expectations, we'll spend most of our time on this first invitation. Look at the end of verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession. What's that confession? Well, in a word, it's Jesus. If you remember back to chapter 3, verse 1, the author says, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Hebrews wants us to consider Christ, to confess Christ. He's all we have and he's all we need. Think about what you've seen so far in the first couple chapters of Hebrews about Jesus. Jesus is fully God, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is fully human. He likewise partook of flesh and blood, made like his brothers in every respect. Chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. He made propitiation, that is atonement, for the sins of the people. Chapter 2, verse verse 17. This is our confession. This is what we believe. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. And this confession is not just about what we say, but who we love. This confession is not just about actions, but affections. We take hold. We cling. We put our faith, our trust in Christ, loving Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this text gives us two reasons we should hold on to Christ, put our faith in him. Reason one, because of his supremacy. Reason two, because of his sympathy. Look at verse 14 again, the beginning. Since then we have a great high priest. The author of Hebrews introduced that language high priest back in chapter 2. And as you read, you'll notice that it's a thread woven all the way until chapter 10. And and notice what it says here about Jesus. He is a great high priest. Those three words are attributed to no one else in Scripture. They're reserved for Christ alone. He is supreme. To us, the language of high priest may not carry much weight and impact, but those first recipients would have immediately known immediately known what the author was talking about. He's calling to mind the entire Jewish sacrificial system. The the priest administered sacrifices and offerings. They were mediators between a sinful people and a holy God. They were the the go-between that provided access to God. So you can think about it this way. I live in Washington, D.C., and some people try to get immediate direct access to the president by jumping the fence. It doesn't work out real well for them. They need inside help to get access to the president. And in a much more profound way, sinful people need inside access to get to God. That's what the priest did. And one of the most significant duties came on the Day of Atonement. You can read about that this afternoon in Leviticus chapter 16. And on that day, the high priest of Israel would first make a sacrifice for his own sins. And then he would make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And he would go into the innermost part of the temple, the Holy of Holies. And he would open the veil that exposed the mercy seat. And he would take some blood from that sacrifice and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Symbolically atoning for the sins of the people. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. He could only enter it one day of the year, and he could only enter it for a short period of time. He would go in and come out. And the rest of the year, the people had to offer various sacrifices and offerings, waiting another full year for the great sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. But you should be asking, well, what about us? We have no temple. We have no earthly high priest. But God is still holy. And we still rebel against him. Not just in our actions, but in our affections. We love things more than we love God. This is the definition of sin. Disordered love. And because of that... God still rightly demands a payment for our sin. What are we to do? Well, the author tells us hold fast, put your faith in Christ. He is our great high priest. Jesus is the perfect and the permanent mediator. He is supreme, he is supreme in his position. Verse 14. This high priest, Jesus, who passed through the heavens. So unlike previous high priests, Jesus did not pass into an earthly temple with an earthly veil. After Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into the heavens, into the very presence of God. And unlike earthly high priests, Jesus does not need to repeat his sacrifice In ritual, year after year. His sacrifice was once for all. His atoning work is finished. Isn't this what he said from the cross? It is finished. And this is why Jesus is seated. Not standing and working. Seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 10 says it like this. And every priest stands daily at his service. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And as chapter 4, verse 14 says, notice what it says. We have a great high priest. That's present tense. Jesus is alive. All other high priests lived and died. Jesus lived, died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and is seated and will never die. Jesus Christ is the eternal, the final, the supreme, the permanent, the perfect high priest who's seated in heaven. He is supreme in his position. But also notice that he's supreme in his person. You see in verse 14, Jesus, the Son of God. This is what we just sang about. Jesus, the Son of God. The name Jesus is his earthly name. It reminds us of his humanity. Son of God is a title. It reminds us of his deity. And then as you see at the end of verse 15... We see that he is without sin. So, unlike previous high priests who were sinful humans, who had to make repeated sacrifices for their own sins and the sins of the people, Jesus is altogether different. He is fully God and he is fully human. He needs no sacrifice for himself, he offers himself up as a sacrifice. And Jesus did not take the blood of bulls and goats into the heavenly temple. And he did not take the blood of a finite sinful human. Jesus takes his own precious infinitely worthy blood. The very blood of the son of God. So God in his infinite kindness sends Jesus to do what we could not. And if we're honest we did not want to do. Love him. Above all things, we have a great high priest who brings us back to God. And Hebrews is telling us his name is Jesus. He is greater. Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin through his wrath absorbing death on the cross. Jesus saves us from the power of sin by sending his spirit to indwell us and sanctify us and help us hold on to Christ. And it gets even better. Jesus, one day, because he rose from the dead, conquering Satan, sin, and death, will one day save us from the presence of sin forever. We will be in a fully restored world, enjoying God with all of his people forever and ever and ever. This is the ministry of Christ. And so if you don't understand yourself to be a sinner, that's not just what you do, but the affections that you have. Jesus has nothing to offer you. Jesus did not come for the righteous. He came for the rebellious. And if we're honest, that's ourselves. There is nothing that we can do to clean ourselves up before a holy God. You can't go to church enough, you can't read your Bible enough, you can't give enough of the right answers, you can't give enough money. There's nothing we can do. See, but here's the good news. What God requires from us, God provides for us. Our divine problem with God demands a divine solution. And this is why Christ entered into human history And here we we see the importance of the full humanity and the full divinity of Christ, don't we? Because it was only as a sinless man that he could be a reconciler and substitute for humanity. But it was only as God that he could satisfy the eternal, infinite demand of justice. So only humanity could pay or only humanity should pay and only God could pay. So the could and the should come together in the God-man, Jesus the Christ. Jesus is unlike any other high priest. He is alive forevermore in the very presence of God, pleading our case with his blood, covering the debt that we owe if we trust in him. And don't skip those first two words of verse 14. Since then it is because we have a great high priest holding on to us that we hold on to him. This, this call to hold fast to the confession of faith is not a plead from the, from the writer to try harder and to do better. That would not be good news. He's not saying try harder to earn God's approval, earn God's love. no. The call to hold fast is a lavish invitation to rest assured in Christ's finished work, leading a new and holy life as you wait for the heavenly rest to come, which you heard Kevin preach about just a couple of weeks ago. And so what we are called to do is based entirely on what Christ has already done. This is the good news of the gospel. The decisive factor is not the strength of your hold, but the supremacy of your high priest. The decisive factor is not the strength of your whole, but the supremacy of your high priest, Jesus the Christ. He is supreme. And unless you think he's so supreme, he cannot understand you or identify with you. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hold fast to Jesus because he sympathizes with you. As I was meditating on this verse, there were so many things that were comforting to me in this passage. Jesus understands us. He was tempted like us. Uh, And we'll look at those things in a minute. But one of the other things that was massively comforting to my soul was the absence of something. Nowhere, nowhere in this verse do you see the word if. It does not say if we have weaknesses, it does not say if we are tempted, it doesn't say if you have needs. No, it flat out assumes that we have weaknesses and temptations. How comforting is that? It's like a a release valve on my soul that lets out this pressure. Because if you're anything like me, you battle internal pride that bubbles up and external expectations that entice me to put on a plastic smile and pretend like everything's okay, that I'm better than I am, that I'm stronger than I am, that I'm more capable than I am. And I call this Barbie doll Christianity. So I've got two daughters, precious daughters, an eight and a five-year-old, and so in our house there's a lot of pink. There are too many hair bows to begin counting. And there are a few Barbie dolls. And so, if you've ever picked up a Barbie doll or men, the Ken doll, I know you don't play with Barbie, but you got Ken. You notice a few things when you pick up these little toys. First, they have airbrushed facial features with just the right amount of smile to not make it look silly, but it's also not creepy. It's got the perfect clothes and matching accessories. Look at the teeth next time. They are glowing white. Perfectly groomed hair. And it's all fake. Not only are the external body proportions unrealistic to the point of impossible, if you pull them apart, which I have, they are completely empty on the inside. Yet, too often, we're tempted to live our Christian lives this way. Plastic smiles and superficial self-made strength so we look good on the outside. But if we do that on the inside, you're going to be just like a doll, empty and void. And so, Christian brother and sister, if you only pretend to be weak, you only pretend to need the strength of Christ and the support of others. If you only pretend to be tempted by sin you only pretend to need the help of the Spirit and encouragement from your small group members. If you pretend, you will have nothing real to offer others. And you will deny others the opportunity to speak anything real into your own life. Verse 15 is giving you permission. You're weak. You're needy. You're tempted. You're tired. It's okay to not be okay. And it gets even better. That does not have to define you. When you understand this, when you embrace your need, you can truly embrace Christ. And when you truly embrace Christ, your weakness become strength. Embrace Christ, Christian brother and sister. Admit your needs. And for my non-Christian friends, I hope this is encouraging to you, perhaps in a roundabout way. Maybe you thought Christians were ones that had it all put together, they were morally superior and dressed up nice and came together and just talked about how great they were on Sunday mornings. That's not true. Jesus did not come for the prim and proper, but the weak and the wobbly. Jesus came for those who know their faults and their limitations, those who are not too proud to drink from the fountain of amazing grace. The church is not a museum for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. Non-Christian friend, if you are sick, I bet you don't wait until you're better before you call a doctor. So it is with Christ. Don't try to clean yourself up before you come to him. Come to him today. Will you come to Christ this morning? And if you do, know that he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. It's exactly what verse 15 tells us. Look at verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. There's a double negative. Do not have who's unable, which makes it a positive. In other words, the author is saying... Jesus is able to sympathize with us in all that we experience. Jesus knows our human frailty. Though fully God, he clothed themselves with the limitations of humanity. Think about the life of Christ. Jesus was hungry and thirsty. Jesus knew sleepless nights and tiring days. Jesus knows physical pain and spiritual agony. And Jesus knows the effects of living in a broken, sinful world. He knows the loss of a loved one, the despair of loneliness, the sting of rejection, the abandonment of betrayal. He receives sharp words of criticism from his closest friends and his harshest enemies. Jesus knows the shame of abuse and the humiliation of public scorn. And in every respect, he has been tempted as we are. So Jesus knows what it's like to be a frail human living in a broken world, battling the temptations of sin and the lies of Satan. Now some of you might be thinking, really? Does Jesus really know in every respect? I mean, come on. He wasn't married. He doesn't know what it's like to have the temptation to get angry at your spouse. Jesus certainly didn't have an iPhone or an internet connection. He has no idea of the temptation of going and looking something I shouldn't, or the temptation to to put out that humble brag on social media, talk about how great he is. Jesus did not have a car, so he wasn't tempted to yell at the driver who cut him off. And in a way, I think you'd be correct. But the author's not saying Jesus was tempted exactly like you in every way, but essentially and foundationally, like you in every way. Again, think about the life of Christ. There were raucous parties tempting him toward gluttony and drunkenness. There were plentiful opportunities to lie, cheat, and steal for personal gain. There were women admirers tempting him toward lust. There were the not-so-smart disciples tempting him endlessly to selfish impatience. He saw the material possessions of others and the lack of his own. He was tempted to covet. He won arguments against his opponents and was only tempted to gloat over them. He wrestled with God in prayer while being tempted to grumble and to doubt God's goodness. Jesus knows the battle against sin. Jesus experienced the fullness of Satan's temptations through the limitations of human weakness. And Jesus won every single time. He was tempted and tested just like you. So you have a high priest Christian who knows you and understands you and has compassion on you. So as you hold fast to Christ, know that he knows everything you have and will experience. In a world filled with brokenness and sorrow, trial and temptation... We do not have to worship a God who is immune to it or removed from it. This is a unique aspect of the Christian faith. Our God does not just stand far off from our suffering and our weaknesses, He enters into it in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus does not roll His eyes at our weakness, Jesus does not mock our struggle with sin. No. Jesus sympathizes with us because he has gone before us. God does not overlook or ignore us. He leans down and he kisses us in Christ. That's how Bernard of Clairvaux, a Christian from about a thousand years ago, spoke of Jesus, the incarnation. Jesus entering into human history and his crucifixion, dying on the cross, was the kiss of God. And just like a wedding ceremony, the kiss displays the the, the love of the groom and the bride. The earthly life of Christ showcases his boundless love for his bride, the church. This made me think of a story uh, I read in the past. It says... A young husband sits in the recovery room where his wife lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish looking. A tiny twig of, her, of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, severed. Her mouth will be disfigured from now on. Will my mouth always be like this, she slurs. The doctor responds, yes, it will. She nods and is silent, but her husband smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. Then he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. He twists his lips to accommodate hers, to show that their kiss still works. When their lips touch, though weak, she knows she's intimately loved. In Christ, God twists his lips to kiss us in our weakness so we know that we're loved. So I do not know what you're struggling with this morning. Perhaps you're spiritually exhausted. Think of leaving the faith, leaving the church. Maybe it's you're battling the lies of shame from being taken advantage of physically or intimately Maybe you're just not happy with where you are in life. You thought you'd be married by now or have more kids by now or have a better job title by now. Maybe you're you're tired of fighting the, the lustful temptations that bombard your soul and you just want to give in. Or maybe you did last night. Maybe you're experiencing the hurt of betrayal or the sting of losing a loved one. Maybe it's the unrelenting daily stress of parenting or the demands at your job. I do not know what your struggle is. But Jesus Christ does. And he twists his lips to kiss you. To let you know you are not removed from his love. And he's inviting you to trust him. To hold fast to him. This week in your small groups, North Wake. Help each other think about the sympathy of Christ. Help each other hold on to Christ, to trust in Christ. Remind each other that our God is not distant and uninvolved, but he is near and intimately caring. And this leads us to our second invitation. So the author of Hebrews invites us to hold fast to Christ Jesus. And as we do that, invitation number two, we draw near to God through Jesus. Look at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The invitation here is one of continually approaching God with assurance and boldness. Oh, this couldn't be any more different than how the people in the old covenant were told to approach God. Remember, under the old covenant, they had to keep their distance. People literally died from getting too close to God. Only the high priest... Only once a year, only for a short time. But now something has changed. We don't have to wait all year to be reconciled with God. Our access to God is not based upon prescribed rituals and the actions of a mortal high priest. We have a great high priest who offered himself up once for all. And now we can approach God not with cowering fear but with confident boldness. And notice, this confidence is not based upon our goodness, our performance, and it's not presumptuous as if God owes us something. No, our confidence is based upon the finished work of Christ. As we will sing in just a moment, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. That's our assurance. We approach God with confidence because of Christ. And notice what we come to. A throne of grace. Christian brother and sister, don't let this wonder get lost on you. Jesus hung on a tree of judgment so that you could kneel at a throne of grace. Jesus was forsaken by God that you might draw near to God. And now when you come to him, you receive mercy. That's God's response to our misery and messiness. Instead of deserving getting what we deserve, just punishment for our sin, we get mercy, and it gets better. We find grace, a lavish invitation, God's unmerited favor, grace. God's word here reminds us that he's not a distant judge waiting to condemn. He's a devoted father rejoicing over you. And so some of you are here and you're being blackmailed by Satan. He's using your past debaucheries to exhort you, to, to extort you and, and keep you away from God. He's whispering into your ear, you've outsinned God's grace and mercy. And you're starting to believe him. That thing you're thinking about right now, you think that's going to keep you from God's mercy and grace. Maybe it happened last night, 10 days ago, 10 years ago. You, and you're thinking, I could never draw near to God. And there's there's others of you here this morning that you think because of what's been done to you, 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 you've been been left so dirty and and ashamed that you could never go to a God who is pure and holy. And you're thinking, I could never draw near to God on my own. But what if? What if there was someone who defeated Satan? What if there was someone who paid the penalty for your sin? What if there was someone who took your shame upon himself? What if there was this someone was perfect and permanent mediator between you and God? What if this someone was alive right now pleading your case with his blood in God's presence? And what if, just what if, what if this someone was inviting you to draw near, not based on your goodness and performance, but based upon his grace and his pleasure? What if that were true? Well, Hebrews tells us this is no what if. Jesus is our great high priest, and we can draw near to God and enjoy God. Christian, treasure your immediate access to God. It came at a price. Draw near to God by regularly repenting of your sins and enjoying God's grace. Draw near to God by being meaningfully involved with other members of this church and speaking the gospel to one another. Draw near to God as you learn more about him in your life change classes. Don't let God become stale and academic to you. God is not a proposition to be studied. He's a person to be enjoyed. And a special plea for you seminary students, do not use your theology to dissect God. Use your theology to draw near to him and to worship him. Draw near to God by enjoying the deliciousness, yes, deliciousness of prayer. Do that individually, but also do it corporately. Notice Hebrews is written to a group. The language is we, us, our. So tonight is corporate prayer. What a prime opportunity to draw near to God with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And in a moment, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Draw near to God. As you hold the bread, remember the body of Christ. He came near to you. As you drink the juice, remember the shed blood of Christ that brings you immediate and eternal access to God. If you're here, you're not trusting in Christ to draw near to God, I hope you see there's no other way. Jesus is the only perfect and permanent mediator. The only way to come to God's presence is through Jesus, the Son of God. And so if you want to learn more about that, you can come talk to me. You can talk to anybody you've seen up here. But don't leave with thinking about how you can access God through Jesus, the great high priest. Jesus is greater. He is our great high priest. He is supreme. He is sympathetic. And he is all sufficient. Hold fast to him as he holds fast to you. Draw near to him as he draws near to you. And when you do this, you'll receive mercy and find grace to meet your every need. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, we come and we marvel at the majesty of your word, not just your written word, but your living word, Christ. Jesus, we thank you that you are a great high priest. Holy Spirit, work in our lives that we would hold fast and draw near, remembering, first of all, that it's Christ that holds fast and draws near to us. It's in his name that we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joey table is symbolic of relationship. Uh, When you you pull up a seat at a table, you've been invited to that table, or perhaps you've invited someone to the table. And so this morning as we gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, um, this is an invitation. Uh, For those of you